Well, if you were able to be with us last week, we ended up breaking 2 Timothy 4 up into an even smaller portion than I was originally expecting to. And we looked at just verses 1 and 2, and we talked about Timothy's charge, or by extension, the pastoral charge. This was Paul giving Timothy his, as as Paul writes, his final letter to Timothy, not knowing if he's going to see Timothy again, hopeful that he'll see Timothy again, but he doesn't know. And so he writes this uh, to give Timothy sort of his final word, his final commission, if you will, as a pastor. And so we looked at the pastoral charge and we looked at all the elements from a a, a grand perspective of, of what makes up the pastoral office. And we saw that Timothy was called to be a preacher of the word. We saw that Timothy was called to reprove rebuke and exhort his congregation, but to do so with patience and knowledge of the word and that he was to be ready for this kind of ministry at all times. And so we looked at what the pastoral charge was. But what Paul transitions to, his, his, his uh, context here in 2 Timothy chapter 4, so feel free to open your Bibles there. What Paul's going to, to, to work into this pastoral charge is not just what it is, what Timothy and what the pastor is called to do, but why this is so important to do it. In other words, what are the consequences of having unfaithful pastoral leadership? What are the consequences of then, by extension, having an unfaithful church? And we're going to see why it's so important. And, and really, Paul breaks his uh, line of thought up into two particular reasons why it's so important for Timothy to take on this pastoral charge, this commission. And then we're going to take the two reasons that Paul gives to Timothy and try to then apply them to our own circumstances and see why it's so important to have not just pastoral leadership, but to have a faithful church in our context as well. So uh, may we read the text. This is from 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is right after verses 1 and 2 where Paul has exhorted Timothy to reprove, rebuke, and preach the word and to teach the word. And and his entire pastoral ministry is sort of summarized in verses 1 and 2 and then he begins in verse 3 and onward. And I would ask if you would read along with me for these are the very words of God. The Apostle Paul says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. In many ways, you can think of what we just read as the end of the letter. It's not technically the end of the letter, and we are going to preach through the end of the letter, but just the way that they structured letters back there, and as you will see, what continues from 9 through 22 in many ways are, are just sort of uh, logistics, right? Try to come to me and bring this to me and tell so-and-so I said hello and peace be with you. So this is really the end of the, the content of Paul's thought, if you will. And as he ends it, uh, my argument here is that if we look at the structure of 4, um, 1 through Eight, what we see is a charge and then two reasons why that charge is so important. Here's why I say that. We looked at one and two as the pastoral charge and then what's the first word of verse three? Four. Your translation might have some kind of different connecting word there. But he says in verse three, in verses one and two, it's do this. In verses three, four. Because this is why. 
So do this for this. And then what he ends up doing is in verse 5, he essentially summarizes yet again Timothy's commission in even grander terms, right? He says in verse 5, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of evangelists, fulfill your ministry, right? So he almost repeats this broader category of the charge to, 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 to do your work, do what you're supposed to do. And then in verse 6, yet again, four. Here's why. Here's your commission. Here's why it matters. Fulfill your ministry. Here's why it matters. So, so we see two reasons why this pastoral commission is so important for Timothy. And so we're going to look at those two reasons together. So if we go back to verse 3, what's the first reason that it's so important for Timothy to be a faithful pastor? Well, I say the first reason is this, the allure of false teaching. The allure of false teaching. Before we break it down sort of word by word, uh, let me just paraphrase it for this. Paul knows that false teaching is popular. And the reason false teaching is popular is because false teaching is attractive. There's an allure to it. And Paul knows that many, many people are going to be attracted like moths to a light to false teaching. So it is important for Timothy to be a faithful pastor because of the allure of false teaching. Here's what, how Paul says it. He begins in verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. So Paul begins by telling him the time is coming, and, and remember, this time is very near to Timothy. We talked about that at the beginning of chapter 3. Paul's talking about some time that's coming with godlessness and false teaching, and Paul says, you will encounter it. So even though I think that what Paul says in, in verse 3 is very much applicable and alive in our culture, and I'm going to make that argument as part of our application. But we have to see is Paul is telling Timothy to get ready for something that's going to happen to him. And what's going to happen to him is he's going to see a culture around him, maybe people even in his own church, who are going to what? They're not going to endure sound teaching. Right? They don't want to put up with this, this boring old orthodoxy that we've been hearing about. They're, in other words, I think what Paul is reminding us here is that we as human beings have a natural inclination to novelty. We don't like to hear the same stuff over and over again. We want, we want it to be new and fresh and hip. And it's not even just the content of our message. How the message is even given is oftentimes we're just, we're tired of doing things the way those boring old ancient people 2,000 years ago have been doing. The times have changed, folks. It's time to update our messages. It's time to update our presentation. We are prone to novelty. That's why Paul uses that word like endure. So it, our human condition is so attracted to the new that sometimes hearing 2,000-year-old truths it's something we have to endure. It's like, oh, I'm so tired of this. It's almost, it becomes a burden for some people. They, and really what that is getting at, this, this, this allure to novelty, really what it does, and Paul's argument here, is it exposes that more than just having some natural inclination to novelty, really what it really means is that we are just naturally selfish. We as people, human beings, everyone, myself included, Christians, non-Christians, we're selfish people. And, here, and here's why I say that Paul is, is seeing these people who, who don't want to endure sound teaching as being selfish because what is the ultimate driving force that's causing these people, as he says in verse 4, to wander off into myths? He says in verse 4 that what's happening here, people are turning away from the truth, 
and they're wandering off into myths, what's the ultimate driving force that's causing people to turn from enduring sound teaching to the new, fresh myths that they want to hear? Well, he says this, continuing in verse 3, they do not want to endure sound teaching, but what? Having itching ears. It's kind of a weird analogy, a weird metaphor, right? What does it mean? Well, what Paul's saying is, what, what he's trying to get at is if they've got an itch on their ear, he's, he's making a, an analogy that, that they want to hear something that they're not hearing. As they sit in church, as they sit and, and they hear the same sound, healthy, true, ancient teaching, it's a burden, and now their ears start to itch. They want to hear something else. They want to hear something different. And what specifically is it that they want to hear? They have itching ears, so they accumulate for themselves teachers to what? Suit their own passions. So let me summarize it this way. I, I don't mean to, to, to reason in a circle here. I don't, I, I don't mean to do that. But the bottom line here is people want to hear what they want to hear. People want to hear what they want to hear. In other words, Paul is describing a situation where people are tired of hearing orthodox, sound, historic Christian teaching, and why is it that they're so tired of hearing it? Because it's not feeding, it's not flattering their selfish desires. It's telling them what they need to hear rather than what they want to hear. And so they're going to go, and we're going to look at this in a second, but they're going to accumulate teachers who will rather than tell them the truth, will tell them simply what they want to hear. That is what Paul is worried about. We are selfish people and oftentimes we want to hear what we want to hear. And that takes us back. Remember last week we talked about how, um, how important it is that the pastor rebukes and reproves and with, with, with patience and teaching? Because that's the very nature of true orthodox teaching. True biblical teaching is not interested in flattering you. It's not interested in scratching your itching ears. It's interested in telling you what you need to hear. And so that's why when Paul in chapter 3 talks about the scriptures, he says the scriptures are sufficient for reproof, correction. And then when he talks about Timothy's charge, it's to reprove and to rebuke and to correct. Folks, we talked about it the last two weeks. That's not always fun. Sometimes enduring sound teaching means having to come to grips with the fact that what I want to believe, I can't. What I wish was true isn't. Sound teaching has to correct us. Sound teaching has to reprove us. Sound teaching has to rebuke us. And so essentially what's happening here is people are getting sick and tired of all this correction and reproof. Why won't someone just tell me something happy for once? Why don't they just tell me what I want to hear for once? To suit their own passions, as Paul says it. They're tired of all that reproof and rebuke and correction and truth and they just want someone to make them feel good. Just, just, just tell me what I'm already longing to hear. And so what Paul describes them doing in order to fulfill, to, to get their itching ears scratched, so to speak, is fascinating. I, 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 it's, it's, in my opinion, it's one of the most fascinating Pauline phrases. And here's why I say that. How is it that people go about solving their issue? He says what in verse 3? Again, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they want, they, their ears, they want to hear something new. They want something that's going to just suit their own passions. It's going to tell them what they already think, what they already believe. It's just going to affirm who they are and what they believe. Now, how do they go about accomplishing this? They will accumulate for themselves 
teachers to do this. Here's why I think this is so fascinating. The vast majority of time, what Paul's describing here are false teachers. These are false teachers. These are people who are not teaching sound teaching. These are people who are instead just telling you what you want to hear. That's a false teacher. In the vast majority of time, the Bible talks about false teachers. It almost, whether it does so explicitly or implicitly, it almost always paints this picture of the false teacher being a predator. And the people ensnared are the prey. Right? The, the Bible is prone to do that. When Jesus was talking about the false teachers, how did he describe them? His famous analogy. Wolves in sheep's clothing. So the picture is like, we've got all these gentle little sheep, ignorant, they don't know any better, and the wolves come and devour them. Right? The false teachers just manipulate. And we saw it even in our own, uh, in, this, in 2 Timothy not long ago, remember he talked about false teachers who sneak into the households of gullible, guilt-ridden women. Right, again, implicitly, it's kind of that predator and prey. I mean, these women are guilt-ridden and they're gullible. They don't know any better. And here comes this evil false teacher to devour them. Almost every time you see false teachers in the Bible, they're predators seeking prey. But here's what's interesting. The way Paul describes it in this text, the prey have become the predators. Paul does not describe these people as ignorant objective people just being carried away. They went and found the false teachers themselves. The story that Paul paints here are not sheep being devoured. It's sheep turning their back on their shepherd and say, let's go look for wolves. They went out from the pen and into the forest and found every creature with the sharpest fangs they could and elevated them on a platform. They accumulated for themselves. They said, I'm done with those pastors who care about my soul and I want the wolves who are simply going to suit my passions and tell me what I want to hear. They're not victims. So here's how I think we put that all together. Oftentimes people are. Sometimes people truly are just victims of bad, false teaching and corrupt churches. That happens all the time and I don't want to ignore that reality. And, and I think the Christian church, quite honestly, as a whole, needs to be far harsher on false teachers than we currently are. I think we show them too much what we think is biblical charity. And it's actually just irresponsible pastors not willing to throw rocks at the wolves. So I think we need to be harder on false teachers than we are. But what we also need to understand is that at a certain point and in certain contexts, it's not all their fault. At some point, we have to understand that as these false teachers who are simply just telling people what they want to hear, as they fill stadiums with thousands and thousands and thousands of people, people are flocking all over our country to listen to people who will just simply pump them up and encourage them and tell them everything they already think is true is true. As these people fill these stadiums and fill these arenas, to some degree, we have to look at the people showing up and also be willing to say, shame on you. They accumulate for themselves false teachers. These are people who went looking for false teaching. He doesn't doesn't present them as victims. He presents them as selfish individuals who are tired of their pastors not flattering them enough. Everything he says go against my passions, my emotions, my desires. Let's go find a church that will tell me what I want to hear. That's what Paul warned Timothy of. 
And let me just say, I think that is absolutely a perfect picture of 21st century American evangelicalism. You can ask my wife, I drive her crazy. All I do during the week is I just scroll through social media and I listen to sermons all week long of the, some of the biggest, most popular pastors in America. And I can tell you, the best way of describing almost all of their messages are this. They scratch itching ears and tell people what suits their own passions. We tell people what they want to hear. And that's why it's amazing how often you'll find people when they, when they criticize the church, they'll say things like, you know, I, I went to that church and didn't like it, but then I went to this church and it was just so encouraging. And it's not a bad thing. I, 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 it's, I don't think it's my goal that when you leave every single Sunday, you're miserable. That, that's not my goal. But it's interesting, Paul doesn't actually ever tell the pastor to be encouraging. In some translations, it uses the word encouraging, but that's why the other translation will say something like exhort or correct because that word encourage isn't necessarily emotional encouragement, right? If, if you're helping someone repent of sin, that's a form of encouragement. But when people say encouraging, what they mean is emotionally encouraging. I left bouncy and happy and floaty. Because at no point in time are these people ever interested in telling me that maybe what you think about this issue is wrong. Maybe the way you're living your life right here is wrong. They're not interested in reproof and rebuke and difficulties. They're interested in having their passions suited. They're interested in scratching their itching ears. Just tell me what I want to hear, Pastor. And, and so let me encourage you with this. Um, I, and I want to be careful here. It, it's never, at the end of the day, our, our ultimate desire is that whatever God has revealed, whatever God has said, that we would not only know it and believe it, but that we would embrace it. Okay, that's, that's where we all want to get to. But let me just say, there is, there is a little bit of virtue in reading your Bible and reading something and feeling or thinking, I don't like this. Let me tell you, to a certain degree, that's actually really healthy. And here's why I say that. Because when you come across things in the Bible that are asking you to believe things you don't want to believe, or asking you to live your life in such a way you don't want to live, what that tells you is that you're letting the Bible speak for itself. If you read through the Bible and you're never challenged, your lifestyle is never challenged, your beliefs are never challenged, your cultural assumptions are never challenged, I submit to you, you're probably just reading the Bible how you want to read it. There's some health in saying, wow, God expects this of me, I don't want to do that. Because what is that saying? It's saying, I'm letting the scriptures speak for themselves. I'm letting them confront me. I'm letting them say what I don't want them to say. And now it's my job to conform to it. But if all pastors ever do, if all our churches ever do, if all our reading of the Bible ever does is just scratch our ears and just constantly tell us what we want to hear, there's something wrong there. It is not the pastor's job to scratch itching ears. It is not the pastor's job just to make sure that you're happy and encouraged every week. It's a pastor's job to speak the truth of God, proclaim his word, no matter what the consequences might be. But here's what's interesting to, to sort of s summarize all this. Paul is really, uh, you know, uh, warning Timothy about shallow theology and Bible-proof texting and people who focus more on presentation than content and pastors who are far more concerned with being comedians and self-help gurus and self-encouragement gurus. But as he warns Timothy of this, doesn't his advice seem a little counterintuitive? 
right? So in other words, here's how we summarize Paul's point. This is essentially what Paul told Timothy. Timothy, the day is coming very soon when people don't want to hear sound teaching anymore. They don't want it, Timothy. So what do you need to do? You need to teach sound teaching. They don't want to hear healthy teaching. They don't want to hear the word anymore, Timothy. They don't want that. Right? They're, they're, they're bored. They're tired of it. They, they want something new and something fresh. So what do you do? Don't give it to them. Right? That, that, that goes against every bit of our kind of consumer uh, kind of marketing expectations. Right? This is really bad church growth marketing right now. Really bad. Because what else do our churches do today? Well, the people have spoken. They're not coming to church for reasons X, Y, and Z. So how do we make our church more uh, appealing to them so that they'll come in? It's called being sensitive to what the seeker wants. Paul's saying it's the exact opposite. Paul's saying, yeah, they want this, they want this, they want this. Don't give it to them. Give them this instead. Paul is calling Timothy, because here's what we have to understand as, as, uh, as a church. When we understand what the Bible says about people, we need to come to grips with the fact that they don't know what they want. They think they do, but they don't. Let me make a bold claim. I know more about what the unbeliever needs than the unbeliever knows about what the unbeliever needs. Because we have a word from God, an objective, infallible word from God that has told them what they need, even if they disagree with that. So our job as a church, our job as pastors, is not to give people what they want. It's to give people what they need. Paul is telling Timothy, listen, the culture is going to wander off into myths and you're going to find a bunch of people pressuring you to start adopting your message and adopting your methods so that it will be more comfortable and attractive and appealing to these people with itchy ears. And Paul is saying, don't do it. And, and ultimately, the reason I think this is not counterintuitive is because of this. In verse five, Paul uses an interesting word to describe Timothy. One I wouldn't expect. He says, as for you, always be sober-minded. I expect that, right? That's one of the qualifications for an elder. He says, endure suffering. That's been a theme of the last two books, right? So I expect that. But then he says this, do the work of an evangelist. I don't expect that. I don't consider the pastoral office an office of an evangelist, right? I, I don't consider myself right now an evangelist. When, when we think of the term evangelist, we think of preaching the gospel to the lost, and generally speaking, I don't look upon this group of people as lost people. I mean, we do preach the gospel, and they're, they're very likely lost people in every church, so I, that's part of it, but that, that's not really how I would identify the work, is evangelizing the lost when we're preaching on Sunday morning to Christians from the Word. And, and we see throughout Scripture that oftentimes the office of evangelist and the gift of, of evangelism is separated from the pastoral work, right? In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul talks about how God... To equip the church, he gave us pastors, pastors, teachers, and evangelists. He, he separates evangelism from the pastoral office. I think the reason he includes in here is because what he's ultimately saying is, Timothy, as the culture and as people are wandering into myths, the way you protect your people, the people who know the Lord, who are actually hungry for the word, the way you protect them is by not giving them what everybody else is desiring. I think, I think, in other words, what, what Paul is saying is that a healthy church and healthy leadership within the church actually serves as a means that God uses to keep his sheep in the fold. 
And that's why there's a little bit of evangelism to Timothy's duty because Timothy's faithfulness, his faithful pastoral ministry is protecting his sheep from wandering into the myths that all of their friends are wandering into. So to to summarize this first point, why is it so important for Timothy to take his charge? Well, because he needs to protect his people from wandering into myths. Because there's an allure to false teaching. And that allure is that so often false teaching says exactly what I want to hear. It tells me exactly what I want to hear. And Paul says, you are not protecting your people if you tell them what they want to hear. Do the work of an evangelist and tell them what they need to hear. Protect God's people with the truth. And so that really is a a pretty easy application for us, is it not? What do we expect from our elders? What do you expect from your pastor? What do I expect from our church? I expect that we will be people who love God's truth, who gather around God's truth, and who will conform ourselves to what the word has said, whether we like it or not. That we will pray and ask the spirit, help me to embrace what you have revealed here. Help me to love what you've revealed here. We conform our will to God. We don't expect God to conform his will to us. That's essentially what false teaching is, is it's saying, I don't like God the way he is, so let's create him in our image. Oh, the Bible says this is a sin. I like it, though. I don't think it is a sin, so I'll just worship a God who loves what I love. But we are not called to make Christ into our image. We're called to be conformed to the image of Christ. So the best thing that we can do for Roswell, the best thing we can do for our city is to be a church of people who love truth, who love the word at all costs. It is so important. And then he gives us his second reason. What's his second reason for why it's so important for Timothy to to take this on, to take on pastoral ministry, to do the work of evangelists, to fulfill his ministry? Well, he says in verse 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. So the second reason why the pastoral mandate is so urgent is because of Paul's absence. Right? Paul is essentially handing a baton off right now. When we look at the historical context behind this letter, it makes sense that Timothy probably, rightfully, leaned pretty heavily on Paul. I mean, look at all the things that we've studied as we've worked through First and Second Timothy. We know that Timothy's young and inexperienced. We know that he's a little timid and overwhelmed. And on top of that, he has the exact opposite in Paul. Paul was not young, was not inexperienced, and he was potentially outside of Christ. And I don't mean to be harsh to the other apostles, but I think you can make an argument that he's probably the boldest human being that's ever lived. So Timothy has this giant in front of him, this mountain of a man who's experienced and wise and bold and courageous. And on top of all of that, he's an apostle. He's speaking the word of God. He's infallible. He's a walking, talking Bible. And he's brought Timothy under his wing. He's been, he calls Timothy his child in the faith. He's been, Timothy was his traveling companion. So all of those reasons make it easy for us to, Timothy probably leaned pretty heavily on Paul. But what's the problem? Paul's not immortal. And he's writing to Timothy saying, essentially saying, you're going to have to do it by yourself now. Why? Because I'm in prison in Rome, you're in Ephesus, and I'm not coming back. 
He describes himself in verse 6 as essentially saying, I'm going to die soon. Paul was so important for the Gentile church, and now he's being removed. That's why this is so urgent. Timothy needs to take Paul's place. He needs to take that baton, and he needs to keep influencing the world and keep influencing the kingdom the way Paul taught him to. Paul, it's, it's not surprising that Paul describes his death in Old Testament language. Right, he describes himself as being poured out as a drink offering. He's, he sees his, his martyrdom as he's executed in Rome, beheaded under Emperor Nero. He sees that as essentially himself laying down on an altar, so to speak. He sees himself as offering a sacrifice to God with his death. Because Paul knows that his very life has been consecrated and dedicated to the work of God. He knows that I give everything to the Lord and to his will and I hold nothing back from myself. He sees his ministry and his life as being one big sacrifice. And that's why he tells us in the book of Romans to offer your own bodies as a sacrifice to God. That we wake up every single morning knowing that as I choose righteousness over sin, as I choose the Lord over false gods, as I choose, choose truth over error, that is in, my, in a sense myself offering myself as a sacrifice, saying, God, do with me what you will. Teach me what you will. We throw ourselves on the altar and say, I am yours, God. I am not my own. And that's how Paul viewed his life and his ministry, that he is being poured out as a drink offering, as a sacrifice to God, and the time of his departure has come. Paul is ready to die. And so Timothy needs to take that baton. That is why the pastoral faithfulness is so urgent for Timothy in his day. And I think this has a bit of an application to us. And here's how I think it does. This is an amazing thing that Paul is doing here as he sort of metaphorically passes his ministry on to Timothy. And here's why I say that. We in... Uh, America today, we, everyone here in Roswell, we live in times very similar to Timothy's, and here's what I mean by this. They're really ununique. That's not even a word, but they're not unique. We live in boring, normative times. Here, here's what I mean by that. If we trace from the beginning of the Bible onward, as God's kingdom expanded, it was always being passed off, so to speak. Leadership was always being passed off to unique and amazing leaders. I don't mean to, you know, bash myself or bash anyone in here, but let's just grapple with reality for a minute. The people who carried God's kingdom throughout the scriptures were unique people with unique gifts living in a unique time that we don't share, right? Moses was a unique man. He saw things that we will never see. He experienced God that in this side of life, we will probably never experience him. He, he was given power and miraculous works and revelations and visions on a personal level that most of us never will. Moses was a unique man with a unique ministry and unique gifts. And all the prophets, I mean, you look at Elijah, how many of you in, in Sunday school this morning, we were talking about apologetics and, and, and debating people. Elijah one time got into a, 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 a pun intended, a heated apologetic uh, experience one time. And you want to know how he, how he won his apologetic battle as he was defending his faith? Oh, he just rained fire down from heaven. Why didn't R.C. Sproul tell us to do that? If, if you want to prove to people that Christianity is true, just rain fire down from heaven, right? Moses made manna fall from heaven. Moses saw a pillar of fire. You know, Elijah, pillar of fire. Well, why don't you just do that? Because 
Those were unique times. And we see that as, as, as the faith was being carried about from prophet to prophet, and then to Jesus himself, the full revelation of God, a member of the Trinity becoming man. And then what does Jesus do? He empowers his disciples at Pentecost, making them infallible, and he gives them these amazing works too. Paul and Peter were raising people from the dead and healing people and speaking new revelation and having all of these things that we just simply don't do or experience. So the, the, the story of the Bible is from amazing prophet to amazing prophet to amazing and powerful kings to Jesus himself to amazing apostles. And so here the apostle Paul is at the end of his ministry, really at the precipice of the end of all of the apostolic ministry, and he's got this baton and he's not handing it off to Moses. He's not handing it off to Isaiah. He's handing it off to, to little Timothy. And he seems so comfortable doing it. In other words, here's the application for us as we think about Paul's absence. We're living in a day and age where Paul's absent too. But isn't it amazing that the all-wise God is so content to entrust the kingdom of God to firefighters and to homemakers and electricians and lawyers. Ordinary, common, everyday people, entertainment industry, starting a laser tag company, teachers, former anesthesiologists, right? God has said, why don't you bring the kingdom to earth? Paul the spokesman for Christ, the person who encountered the resurrected Christ in a way nobody else did, who learned from Christ, an apostle who performed miracles, is telling Timothy, why don't you take my job over? Paul used to pastor the church in Ephesus. That was his church. And he handed it off to, to little Timothy. Isn't it just so amazing that the power of God is not limited to amazing miracle workers whose names are going to go down in the history of the faith forever, like Abraham. The kingdom of God in our day and age is being advanced and spread by thousands and thousands of people that you don't even know exist. There are faithful men and women moving mountains all over the world today. We pray for lost people because I can't help but wonder what work is maybe being done there by ordinary everyday Christians that we don't even see. They're not raining fire from heaven, but they're changing the world. You see, Paul was not panicked that the apostolic ministry is over, the prophetic ministry is over, there's no more prophets, there's no more apostles. What are we going to do? Christ has ascended. No, Paul says, Every Christian has what? Chapter 3, the God-breathed scriptures. And every Christian has what? Acts chapter 2, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is here. The revelation of God has come. So God's saying, what's there to fret about? We don't need miracle-working apostles to transform our world. Paul was so comfortable saying, Timothy, my time has come. Your time has begun. And so that's, I think, the way we apply this second point to our church is is simply to, I don't even quite know how to phrase it, but it's simply this. May we be encouraged 
that God in his infinite wisdom delights to entrust his word and his gospel and his kingdom to boring, ordinary, everyday people like you and me. People like Timothy, people like you, people like me are taking on this apostolic deposit. We're taking on this apostolic history and we're working forward and we're training up our own sons and daughters and we're training up our own disciples so that we can pass the baton to them. And God will continue to work in amazing ways through the ordinary means of faithful Christians, faithful churches, faithful pastors. So take hope. If you want to change the world, you don't, you don't really need miracle powers. If you want to change the world, here's how you do it. You love God and you love your neighbor. And you go to a faithful Bible-believing church and you have communion with the saints and you grow in holiness, you pursue the Lord, you pursue his word, and you change the world. Raise your children in the Lord. Be faithful and you'll change the world. You don't have to be Paul, you just have to be Timothy. And God is more than content with that. And so in conclusion, Paul sort of ends his letter by writing his own obituary. You know, obituaries are, are penned by people we leave behind, but they're written by our lives, right? And here's how Paul summarizes his life in conclusion. Verse 7, as he meditates upon his impending departure, he says in verse 7, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So in conclusion, I would just exhort you to live your life as Paul lived it. Don't give up. Fight the good fight. Run the race and finish the race. Keep the faith. As everyone else is wandering off into myths and accumulating for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, you stay with Paul. Run the race, fight the fight, Maintain the faith and remember that if you love Christ and if you await and long for his appearing and you finish your race, then you will just like Paul, you who, who never raised anyone from the dead, you whose name has not gone down in biblical history, you as an ordinary faithful Christian will receive the same reward. A crown for your righteousness. The crown to all those who have been made righteous. So may we all in this church seek to live our lives as Paul did, to finish the race, to keep the faith, and to await anxiously the appearing of our righteous judge when we too will be awarded a crown of righteousness.